Good morning, everyone. Today we're going to be reading from Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 66. So first, turn with me to Isaiah 65, 17 through 19. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Now verse 25. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Now, chapter 66, verses 1 and 2. Heaven, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Now verses 22 and 23. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Haley. It's good to see your face. It's good to see your faces today. Um, today is our last, if you're a guest with us, today is our last Sunday in Isaiah. I hope it will not be your last Sunday in Isaiah. I hope you have met a friend in the prophet that you, uh, as someone told me after the first service, I uh, feel like I'm saying goodbye to a friend for the last, that I've just gotten really to know in the last 20 weeks or so. I hope you will come back to this for, you know, the rest of your life uh, as one of those great pillars in the Bible, you know, one of the great milestones in Scripture. So memorize it, meditate on it, pray it. Uh, Isaiah is one of those books that's a lot like the Psalms in that you can come back to it and pray it and meditate on it and study it. Uh, for years and years and years to come. I hope you'll do that. So today is our last, um, our last day in Isaiah, but hopefully not the last. I love a good boat story, like an open sea boat story. Um, so when we first read The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, way back when with Karis and Colby, I was hooked immediately. Um, just this great adventure out on the sea. And my favorite character, other than Aslan himself, is Reepicheep, the mouse. Do you know Reepicheep? Reepicheep is one of the talking animals in Narnia. He stands about two feet tall. He's got a black coat, and he wears a gold band with a feather, and he's got a long sword, almost as long as his tail. He's the dude. 
I love Reaper Chief. He's adventurous, bold, courageous, and above all, he wants to honor and serve Aslan, the king. Aslan is the Christ figure in this book by C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia. And we come to the end of the book, the voyage is over, or at least it appears to be over, because the dawn treader can't go any further. It's come to the end of the world. So Edmund and Eustace and Lucy and Reepicheep get in a smaller boat and they're lowered down into uh, the sea and the lily pads and everything as the water's getting shallower. And they have in that boat the four of them and then Reepicheep's small little one-man boat. It's called a coracle. And this one-man boat, they'd lower down with them. And so they paddle on until they can go no further. And they say... This looks like the end, and Ripichi, I mean, he's got this irrepressible, this mouse has this irrepressible spirit. He's like, no, this is not the end for me. And they take his little boat out of that boat, and they start to send him on, and he flings his sword, never to use or need it again. He flings it off into the lily pads with this great sense of freedom that he's going somewhere where he won't need that. And... At that point, this massive wave kind of pulls him up in that little boat into Aslan's country. And the narrator says to us, we never saw Reepicheep again, just his figure, just him disappearing on the top of the wave. But I do think we will meet him one day, he says, in Aslan's country. And as one pastor suggested, this is beautiful, Isaiah 65 and 66, the last several chapters, really backing up further, the last several chapters of Isaiah, it's like our little boat that we get in and we get pulled up through the edge of time into God's country, into eternal life, into eternal blessedness, into this vision of a new heaven and a new earth. And that's where we want to go today. Like the book ends with us kind of breaking through the boundary where the dawn treader can't go. But we get to go through Isaiah's vision. We get to go in this little boat into a place of everlasting beauty and happiness and delight out of our present world of dysfunction and disease and depravity and disappointment and frustration. I was talking to one parent just as recently as this morning. This is hard, it's a hard world. This is a hard world. We get to leave that for just a few minutes and see into where God is taking us. So I wanna invite you into a voyage here that takes us into the new creation Starts in verse 17. We'll think about a new creation. We'll think about a new city. We'll think about a new society and culture and way of life. And then, finally, a new house. 
Number one, new creation. Let's think about a new creation as, as we get pulled up into this beautiful vision. Verse 17, for behold, I create God. This is God's voice. God is speaking. Watch this. Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. God is doing something here. I'm making all things new. The reason that God's people at the end of this book of Isaiah, listen to this, the reason God's people should abandon their idolatry and their self-centeredness and the reason they should embrace God's word through the prophet and the reason they should let God's glory pull them further up and further in and the reason they should listen to the voice of the suffering servant, the Messiah, is that God is the creator of heaven and earth. I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. He made all things and is the only one who has the power and creativity to make all things new. Only one who could do it. That's why you should listen to God and his word because he knows what he's doing. Absolutely everything in the old order that was infected by sin, distorted and diminished by evil will be made new and the power of sin will no longer have dominion over us. Man, I look forward to that. How I look forward to that. Look at the next part of verse 17, the second half of verse 17. The former things shall not be remembered or even come into your mind. I love this. As I have such a hard time keeping the right things in my mind and heart and keeping the wrong things out of my mind and heart. I love this promise. There's coming a day when I won't have to do that anymore. They won't even be let in your mind in this new order of things. One day your mind will be free, godly, refreshed, with a pure heart for God. No more sarcasm, no more gossip, no more resentment and bitterness. Don't you long for the day when you won't have to, oh wait, I'm hanging, I'm hanging on to that. That feels like resentment. Why am I hanging on to that? I need to ask God to forgive me. Don't you look forward to the day when you're not hanging on because you're not even trying, like it won't even be a temptation. It won't even come into your mind to hang on to that bitterness and that resentment and that struggle. It won't even be there. You won't even be mindful of it. It'll be so far gone. Like I look forward to that. You'll never hear someone say in heaven, I could never forget what he did to me. You'll never hear that. I could never forgive that person for that. You'll never hear those words in heaven. Look at verse 17, what a promise. The former shall not be remembered or come into mind. The newness of all things will be so rich and so real and so beautiful that we will be glad and rejoice forever, which takes us to verse 18. There is a new city. Now, I want to ask you, as you look at verses 18 and 19, to just do a little Bible study with me here for a second, okay? So, opening the Bible, looking clearly at this, look, look with me at verses 18 and 19. I'd love for you to just take a moment and ask yourself, what is the remarkable distinctive of this city? Take a moment and look at it. What do you see? What is the noteworthy distinctive that you kind of, just kind of keep seeing it over and over again, verse 18 and 19. It's gladness, it's joy, it's happiness 
forever. This new city, uh, this new city is a place of remarkable joy and gladness because God, God says, be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness, and I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. So they will rejoice and delight in God, and God will delight in them, and it will be this beautiful, symphonic harmony of happiness and delight. And I mean lasting, meaningful, satisfying delight. A city, beautiful city, in which God delights in people. The first city that we have on record in the Bible, in the, in the biblical storyline, was humankind's earliest effort to secure and stabilize itself based on its own power, especially even for its own name and glory. You remember this back in Genesis 11. We're gonna build a tower, and the text of Genesis 11 says we're gonna, we're gonna build a tower and make a name for ourselves. Self-glory first recorded city on this side of the fall, right? First city, not a garden. And we're gonna make it for ourselves, for our glory. And then throughout Isaiah, what we see as we keep building out the story of the scriptures is competing cities and kingdoms all vying for earthly power and control and sovereignty, whether it's Assyria or Babylon or whoever it is, even Judah. But what Isaiah is showing us here with the New Jerusalem in verses 18 and 19 is that all other cities and kingdoms fade to black. There is one lasting worldwide city from which everything flows and returns to. It is a city perfectly organized by God for His glory, His delight, a new city in which humanity will be fully realized and beautiful and diverse and multi, uh, like variegated with color and race and ethnicity. It's gonna be absolutely amazing. It's not just sort of a monolithic, boring city. It's the most life-giving life place you could ever possibly imagine. Isaiah's giving us a vision of heaven on earth. And then, this third point, kind of builds out what this new order is going to look like, right? So verses 20 and following, you've got this new order or this new society and culture. I want to read some of this to you. Look at this. Verses 20 through 25. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. So new creation, new city, new society and culture, new way of order. No more shall there be, verse 20, an infant who lives but a few days. No, infants will no longer die. Or an old man who doesn't fill out his days. Can I get a witness? That would be from the old men in the house. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner, a hundred years old, shall be accursed. Now, what's happening here is really interesting. I think verses 20 through 25 describe what life in the new heavens and the new earth will be like, a place of happiness and security and peace and flourishing and no more death, no more sin, no more sorrow. Some read this text to say, well, it's probably a description of the millennial kingdom because during the millennial kingdom, people can die, and so it sounds like people still die. And that is, a, that is a legitimate reading. You can have that reading of this text, and we can still be friends. 
But I, I think the more natural reading of the text is that he's talking about the eternal state. He's talking about heaven on earth. He's talking about forever, not just the millennial kingdom. Here's why. I think what he's trying to do is describe to us in terms we will definitely grasp that death and sin are forever gone. So he's just, he's exaggerating a little bit. He's using... Uh, exaggerated language he's using some hyperbole he's he's talking as if this could be true but it can't be true because death doesn't exist here so with that in mind read it again in verse 20 no more shall there be in it an infant who dies who lives but a few days or an old man who doesn't complete his life he will complete his life and live forever the young man shall die a hundred years old. He doesn't really die. He's not, he's not, he, he gets to live, he gets to, I mean, for a young man to think about living to a hundred is like forever, right? That's what's going on here. And the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Listen to what, how Alec Matir describes it. This is so good. Here's what he says about verse 20. In this present order, death, in this new present order, this heavenly order, um, death will no longer cut life off. In the new Jerusalem, no infant will fail to come to maturity, nor the elderly to be fulfilled. This is not mean to suggest that death will still be present. Now, that would contradict verse 18, which says forever, or verse 19, which says no more, or Isaiah 25, 7 and 8, which swallowed up death and put an end to all of death. He says, this passage is simply affirming that over the whole of life, in every aspect of life, the power of death is gone, forever gone. There will, of course, be no sinners in the New Jerusalem. Again, we're dealing with metaphor. Even if it were somehow possible, but it's impossible, but even if it were somehow possible, a sinner could escape detection for a hundred years, the curse would still search him out and destroy him. In reality, just as death will have no more power, so too sin will have no more place. I think that's probably more like what's happening. I think Isaiah's talking because of all this new heavens and new earth language, I think Isaiah is talking about the eternal state and not simply the millennial kingdom. Again, you can read it both ways. Verse 25, though, I gotta, I gotta say something about this. The wolf who normally tracks down the lamb for dinner. You see this? Verse 25. They will graze together. The lion who is a carnivore, will eat grass. It doesn't end as well for the serpent, though. This is an allusion again to Genesis. Dust will continue to be the serpent's food. The serpent does not thrive. The serpent is on his way to the end, eating dust eating the dust of the ground. The curse that began back in Genesis 3 is broken for everyone 
except the serpent. And the only power the serpent has is to eat dust forever. That's what I see happening through verse 25. A beautiful new order. Now here's the fourth point, and this is the most significant. This is what I wanted to get to. This is the thing I can't wait to tell you. This is the thing I'm really interested in hoping some of you will like awaken to. And here it is. God is making things new. He wants to, he wants a new house. Now look at verses, chap, look at chapter 66, the first two verses, and see if you can figure out what the house is all about. This last point is such a good place to end our study because it's an invitation to meet God. Look at this, verses one and two of chapter 66. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? Where do you expect that I would come and dwell? What do you think he's talking about? What's the new house? Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool, and you wanna build me a house? You're gonna, you're gonna build me a house. Like, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. You couldn't build a house big enough for me, right? So clearly God's not saying, I want you to build me a temple. I want you to build me another temple. In, in fact, he's not at all saying, I want you to build me another temple. Do you remember what Stephen said in Acts chapter seven just before he died, being stoned to death for his faithfulness to Jesus, the Messiah? Stephen said the most, to unbelieving Israel, Stephen said the most high in the middle of his preaching, in the middle of his speech, in the middle of his last words, he said the most high God does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet Isaiah says, and he quotes this very passage, 66, one and two, as Isaiah has said, God's way too big for that. The tabernacle or the temple or anything else like that, that God sanctioned throughout the Old Testament, including in Isaiah, was never designed to be an ultimate place of worship. Never designed to be an ultimate place of worship. In fact, it was often abused as a place of empty, hypocritical worship because God's people didn't understand this very point, that God doesn't just want to dwell in a building. He's not interested in dwelling in a building. In fact, God's not interested in dwelling in this building. The house he wants to dwell in is the house of your heart and soul. That's what verse two is all about. Look at this. All these things my hand has made, so all these things came to be, but I'm not quite as interested in those things as I am to, look at this, declares the Lord, this is the one to whom I will look. This is the one to whom I will come. This is the place where I will dwell with him who is humble and broken in spirit, and who receives with trembling my word, my promise. I want to come to you. I want to make a house with you. Jesus would say things like this. I am representing the Father who wants to bring you back 
so that you might dwell with him. And where I am, you can dwell with me and the Father. And like you can know God through Christ. God wants to make a new house of worship. And he wants to, this is why Paul says things like, look, don't forget you're not your own. You were bought at a price. Your body and mind, your, your whole person, they're the temple of the living God. God wants to dwell inside of you. That's why Stephen goes on in his dying words to unbelieving Israel and says, it is your unchanged heart. It's your uncircumcised heart, he says. That's where God wants to meet you. He says that to unbelieving Israel. True worship, listen, true worship has never, ever, ever happened in a building, in a temple, or in a nice church like this apart from an active, open, humble, broken human heart. It's never happened. You might have had some kind of religious experience. You might have heard a good story. You might have been moved to tears. But it's not been true worship until you heard the word of God and the gospel came alive in your heart and soul. That's where God meets people. This is the one to whom I will look. This is where, like, I made the whole world, okay? He's saying I made the whole world, and you're going to build me a tiny speck of a house and expect me to show up when you pray a prayer? That's not how this works. I want to meet you, verse 2, in your humility and your openness to me and your brokenness over your sin and your willingness to say, I don't know, and, and your willingness to say goodbye to yourself, righteousness and hypocrisy, and say, I will tremble at God's word, verse 2. This means that the gospel has gotten your attention. This means that when God speaks, you listen. This where the, that's where God wants to meet you. Unless God meets you in your heart, in the midst of your need and your brokenness, it will be, it will be Sunday religion and nothing more. And that will not help you this week. By the way, it's really good to see your faces because like I'm seeing people processing things. All right. Um, I got to turn on the no smoking sign and seatbelt sign and all that. I guess you haven't been able to smoke on an airplane for a long time. So no smoking, put your seatbelts on. We're coming in for a landing, but we're not there yet. Okay. Let me hit you with one more thing. Um, I cannot say it better than Ray Ortland in his um, commentary, his excellent commentary on Isaiah about this verse. And I want to close with this. I want you to hear this. This really, really helped me. I hope you will find the same thing. Here's what Ortland says. This is a little long, so please bear with me. 
what God blesses, what God looks upon with favor is very simple. A humble trembling at his word. Chapter 66, verse 2. A humble trembling at God's word, setting no preconditions. We should not think of our singing only as our worship and the sermon as something else, maybe a large group Bible study. True worship is also listening to God's word with a longing to hear, a desire to believe, an intention to obey. Preaching a sermon can be worship. Hearing a sermon can be worship. The one to whom God looks with favor is not the one with the fanciest liturgy or the plainest liturgy, but the one who is humble and contrite and trembles at his word. Now what complicates this is that God uses preachers to communicate his word, and every preacher is imperfect. Every preacher gives the listener some reason not to listen. We don't mean to, but we do. Our responsibility is to minimize the complications. Your responsibility is to overlook the complications and listen to God. Paul commended this to the believers at Thessalonica. When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God, right? 1 Thessalonians 2. When you can open your Bible, this is why we keep, I keep saying, open your Bible, look at this verse with me, right? When you can see in your Bible that the minister's message is coming from the Bible, it changes everything. What you're hearing is not his brainstorm. What you're hearing is the word of God. And receiving it, not as the word of man, but as the word of God. In deep, reverent listening. Last paragraph. Are you still with me? We need a little intermission. Last paragraph. Stay with me. Beware, Ortland says, beware of sitting back in church and rating the service. Three stars, four stars, five stars. Evaluating what suits you. What is happening in worship is more significant than that. We are all actually being evaluated by Christ. Don't be a sermon connoisseur, taking a taste here and a sip there, according to your likes and dislikes. If you will worship as God defines worship, you will receive His Word with a trembling eagerness, whatever it says. Man, I can't speak for you, but I, I'm going to anyway. <laughs> I hope you will want to be in a church. I want to be part of a church that trembles with eagerness at God's word. Do you want that? Do you want to be part of a church family that trembles with eagerness at God's word? And so we're less selective about what we want to obey and more willing to simply follow God all the way up and in. Like, I mean, just like reap a cheap. Just get the boat and say, I'm, I'm all in. I'm, I'm, there's no turning back. Take me further up and further in. I'm willing to obey. 
I'm tired of questioning your word. There, are, there is a time for good, reasonable inquisition. But at some point you cross a line and faith dissipates and you start questioning God. Stop that. I want to be part of a church that trembles with eagerness to hear and receive the word of God. Now, if you've never met Christ, the first way to tremble with eagerness is to meet the living word of God. We believe that the scriptures clearly teach that Jesus Christ is the embodiment of God's word and that he came and lived among men and that he walked around saying things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you want to meet Christ, you can meet him today. You can meet God's living, promised word who will, if you trust him, change everything about what you live for. He will become the new narrative that guides your life. He will become the new story that calibrates everything. He'll become the new greatest love for all things. And you will be able to sail off on this voyage. And it's not, it's not that it's going to be like a super easy voyage from here on out, but it is a beautiful voyage. If you want to trust Christ, do it today. We would love to talk with you after the service. I want to pray for us. And during this prayer, you could even start to yield your heart to the mercy of Christ right now. Those of you who are already believers, you consider yourself a follower of Jesus. Why not ask God to rekindle an eagerness and a hunger for his word that you might tremble at his promises and live in them. So Lord, we come to you today. For those of us who wanna come to Christ for the first time, we wanna throw ourselves at the mercy of Jesus. Say, Lord, help my unbelief. Help me to believe in Christ. Help me to believe and trust in you. I turn from myself, my ways, my failures, and I want to trust in Jesus Christ according to the scriptures. I want to trust in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus according to the scriptures. And for those of us who maybe have just kind of gotten stale, life is hard, it's tiring, would you renew us, God? with a hunger and eagerness to discover the gospel again in your promises, in your word. We pray all this in Christ's name.